1: Welcome to Beyond Reason, a show for those who dare to have an open mind. Now here's your host, Justin Cancellari. Hey everybody, welcome to a brand new Beyond Reason. I'm your host, Justin Cancellari. And this is the show for those who dare to have an open mind. Tonight, I've got an amazing guest coming on. Varla Ventura is coming on to talk about her book, Paranormal Parlor, Ghosts, Seances, and Tales of True Hauntings. Now, Varla is the author of said book, uh, which is out June of 2018, this month. She is also the author of five other books on spooky, ooky stuff, Banshees, Werewolves, Vampires, and Other Creatures of the Night. The Book of the Bazaar, Among the Mermaids, Beyond Bazaar and Fairies, Pukas, and Changelings. She can often be found lurking about the deep dark woods and lakes of Minnesota on the hunt for beastly things and hidden history. Everybody help me welcome Varla Ventura to Beyond Reason. Hey Varla, welcome to Beyond Reason. How are you doing this evening?
2: I'm great. Thank you for having me. Happy, happy to be here.
1: So we wanted to get you on to talk about your new book, Varla Ventures, Paranormal Parlor, Ghost Seances, and Tales of True Hauntings. So what got you started on doing this book?
2: Well, this, this is, um, I think the sixth book that I've done with Wiser Books, kind of along these lines with the, sort of very similar format in terms of shape and size and style. Um, And this is probably my, the, the one that I, uh, every writer has that one that they kind of wanted to write all along. And this is, this is that for me. Um, It's just a combination of things that I love to read about things that I love to research and a lot of kind of new discoveries about the history of seances and the paranormal. Um, But truly what got me started is just a a love of a good ghost story. And because I've always loved ghost stories, fiction, nonfiction, um, you know, when you're when you are interested in that kind of thing, and you open yourself up to it, then people always want to tell you their stories. And those are often the best, the best stories are the People, the ones that people share directly with you, um, so this includes uh, stories from contributors that I really admire that I wanted to get their own personal stories, uh, a lot of personal stories of my own, and then just a lot about the history of the paranormal, and then just a bunch of great stuff like, you know, the most haunted cemeteries in the United States and <laughs> fun things like that.
1: Well, I I think it's a very good concept for a book because like just like you were saying people want to share their stories with you when you're talking about this stuff i have a friend at work who found out about the podcast and then is asking me hey have you had this happen or uh the the other day he asked me if i've ever seen a ufo and it's like yeah okay well tell me why you're asking that so that way i and it was it was for him to share a story too. It was it was really interesting.
2: Yeah, yeah. Well, and it's funny too, that you say it that way, because part of you is like, is this guy gonna judge? Is he asking to see if if he's gonna judge me for being crazy? Right. Or is he asking because he wants to share something? And um, yeah, I find that that that's that's kind of a common thread, especially with. A little bit less so with paranormal encounters, but certainly, I mean, you sort of, for lack of a better way of expressing like straight ghost encounters, where someone specifically felt or saw something, I think people are a little more willing to share those. But when they've had something that's disturbed them or something they can't quite explain, especially, you know, there's a lot of other creatures that people think could be responsible for things, that's when um, you definitely get the like eyebrow raise and like, well, I'll tell you something, but I'm going to tell you anonymously, that kind of thing. Yeah.
1: (laughs) Well, I I think one of the biggest things with that is people are afraid if it was a a bad experience and they talk about it or or they think about it, it's going to bring that entity or experience back to them. And that's just something they don't want to go down the the road. They don't want to go down.
2: Sure. If somebody has been traumatized, I mean, that's, that's definitely, they don't necessarily want to relive it. Or if they feel that they have attracted it unwittingly or something, they don't want to bring it around. That's not, that's not, I don't have that problem. I, I don't mind. Yeah. (laughs) I don't mind.
1: (laughs) Well,
2: I'm more concerned about the living people I might attract right. than the uh, than the ones from the afterlife.
1: The funny thing with that is, is uh, I've told several people that I used to do, I used to be a paranormal investigator, and that I got to do a paranormal investigation in Jeffrey Dahmer's family home, and everybody's like, "Ooh, how was that?" I'm like, eh, "It was." About what you would expect, <laughs> very creepy. Very, I mean, you you know what happened there, and then yeah. on top of that, we had experiences going on, pretty much the entire night. There was some where it was just dead air time, which a lot of people don't understand that it's not the ghost hunting shows where you you get evidence every minute of the five, six, seven, eight hours that you're there. So right. Well,
2: those are often, like, edited down into one hour, and it right. gives you that impression that, and it's uh, funny, I was talking with someone earlier today about um, just sort of like paranormal investigating, we were kind of talking about Ouija boards, which I write about in this book in mm-hmm. a, several different ways, both my own experience with them, a couple of the contributors shared their stories, and then I have this really incredible story of a woman who channeled an entire novel via the Ouija so we were kind of discussing this, um, you know, the Ouija board itself and why is it that of all the things, if I say crystal ball, you're not gonna cringe. Mm-hmm. If I say Tarot cards, most people are like, nah, okay, we can handle that. That's a deck of cards. But the Ouija board seems to carry a lot more negativity and people have a lot more um uh I guess they're More inclined to uh, not want to do the Ouija board or say that they think it's evil or something like that. Certainly more so than a lot of other scrying or, um, you know, tools of the psychic arts. And we were kind of discussing, you know, why is that? And there's something about the. Now, now, when the Ouija was invented, we didn't have EVP recordings, right? We Mm -hmm. just had words and people's stories. We didn't have any way to really really prove it. Although there were plenty of experiments and like even Thomas Edison was experimenting with trying to use electricity to record something from the afterlife and trying to actually record the, like the early EVPs, but not really any, the evidence that we had was only anecdotal unless you were there. Um, now we have, you know EVP recordings that we can share. We're able to take video footage and a lot more photos. There was early spirit photography, but a lot of that was altered. And so you just, you know, there wasn't a lot known about photography the way there is now. Everybody's got a, you know, fantastic camera built <laughs> into their phone. So <laughs> it's different today. And um, but the Weijaport, what it's almost like the early EVPs where it it gave a voice. To this thing that you, you are just guessing is there or someone is identifying it as being there. And it was a way to communicate. And I think that that really gave a lot of people the willies because they were just fine with um, thinking about it or maybe reading about it. But having that experience and when seances kind of became very popular, having that experience where, you know, you yourself, your hands are on this thing and it's moving around. Um, I mean, I've never read any. Any instance I've heard of people um, describing like the planchet, the little tool that you use to move around the board mm-hmm. that you put your fingers on. I've I've heard of people describing that as flying off. And I actually had an experience once where it kind of flew off the board, like it just kind of seemed like the energy just got too frenetic and it just psh, slipped off the board. But I've never ever seen one move on its own accord without somebody touching it because I. Not saying that people are pushing it, but that it's something that requires human energy. So it's hard for me to to think of that as something that's evil because it's really an inan- inanimate object. Although we have had a lot of stories of haunted objects and things like that too, things that carry a certain weight or a feeling to them. But the Ouija in particular is just something that's like, even people who are very interested in the paranormal won't touch a Ouija board. This is kind of interesting.
1: Right. Well, I mean, you brought up the crystal ball and tarot cards, and you brought even brought up EVPs. EVPs today are the Ouija board of the techno- technological age. Absolutely.
2: Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And they have a, it's a way of like documenting um, what these entities are saying or trying to say um and you know i mean it's all up to suggestion and sometimes you can't always quite get the i mean the experiences that i've had with like evps and things e- what you see on those shows is difficult because when you have the the show sometimes they'll put the words up on the bottom mm-hmm. and that's like an automatic suggestion right to a person listening it, right? but i have had a few um Recordings that you know when I was doing something overnight or whatever, where I've heard things, and it, it, it that's a little different. Then you then you feel like, yeah, you're not 100% sure because you're not sitting in the room hearing that. It's not like when you have that, um, you know, that tap on the on the sho- shoulder and nothing's there. It's not quite as concrete as that. Yet at the same time, it is more concrete evidence. But it's interesting because I think we're fascinated with the afterlife. But we what we really want is we really want to know is like, is everything okay there? What are mm. you guys doing? Are you all hanging out in a room? <laughs> and like, waiting for us to come along and ask you questions? Are you trapped? You know, all those kinds of things are just um, really fascinating. And it's just it's also kind of an endless I mean, the paranormal investigation is an endless, infinite field of investigation. Because no two experiences will ever be alike right i mean you you probably know that more, more than anyone right. it's like no no two experiences you can go back to the same place you might have an experience there again but are you going to have the identical experience probably not
1: right well and you know the funny thing is i've said this before where we base what we feel and think on our our perception of things and our, our uh, experiences. And so if somebody has a negative uh, experience with a Ouija board, then of course they're going to say Ouija board is evil. Don't touch it. Where somebody who has not like myself, I've never had a negative experience with a Ouija board, but my cousin Eric has had it where the planchette was getting hot. They had severe haunting situations where, uh, toys were being manipulated, that sort of thing, and... Ew. I don't remember... Something so
2: creepy about toys. being you know? <laughs> <laughs> like, oh, she's well, in there, it's a whole other...
1: The funny thing about the toy was, it was this horror, uh, like, toy where it was, like, a weird gorilla creature with a machete or something like that, and the batteries were out of it, and it would turn on making the noises that it was supposed to be making. Um, and that is... One of the only experiences that I'm aware of that they had with the toy, but it, it was just that one toy and it happened more than once.
2: I, I had actually an increase when, when I had my son um, several years ago, the um, apartment that I lived in, which was like a top floor kind of apartment in San Francisco, mm-hmm. old Victorian and I, we had had a few encounters, like my friends had had, had people house sitting before who had said they'd had things. And I'd had a few just kind of where you're like in the middle of the night, hmm, was that what I thought it was? And then some, some more pronounced, um, but there was a, uh, marked increase when I had a child in the house. And also prior to that, when I had, um, children visit me, like my sister would come with her little children and they would stay the night. They had experiences. So, um, but I had some toy things happen that that was enough to just, you know, you just, it didn't like cause me to go screaming out the door, which there's not really a lot that probably would at this point, but there were a couple things that gave me real pause. And it was like, you know, the rattling of a toy, a specific toy rattling, uh, and then walking into the room and not not seeing it, it hadn't fallen out of a little basket or anything like that. Walking back in the other room and it rattling again in the same fashion, loud enough that it wasn't just a vibration kind of thing. So, I've, I've had I had a number of things like that. And um, there's something like especially sort of haunting about bringing in any kind of element that represents children into that kind of situation or any kind of doll, right? Like right. dolls are just the worst <laughs> they're just the worst they're just creepy just on their own just sitting there you know they're just kind of creepy so
1: well (laughs) kind of like the doll that they used for the movie for annabelle i mean not that the annabelle that is in the museum is not creepy enough because all it is is a raggedy and doll but right the the doll that they use in the movie it's like okay i don't think they could have gotten a more creepier doll
2: And just like the idea that a doll could even, you know, move on its own. And that some of those like really, really early kind of turn of the century dolls were just particularly, particularly frightening. You know, Mm -hmm. they just had these like these porcelain faces that are just they're just kind of terrifying. So I guess, yeah, I mean, it goes up there with clowns, right? Like a lot of people don't like dolls and clowns. I I can't stand clowns. Um, But in the book I did write, um, you know, I, I, I tend to be a sort of a collector of stories. And so I didn't, I, previous books, I, I of course write about my own life to a certain extent, but in this book at first, when I set out, I was kind of gathering stories from other people and, um, you know, other, other podcasters and, um, you know, authors that had, you know, written and researched ghosts and, and I, um, I thought, oh, you know, it's nice. I'll have all of this. And, you know, t- people are telling me their stories. Like, oh, I wish I had had like something more pronounced. And then as I started writing, um kind of weaving the thing together, I realized that I'd actually had a number of experiences that I had never bothered to tell anyone myself or had never probably had told someone but had never bothered to put to paper. So here I was egging all these people. Come on, you got to let me tell the story. So I finally kind of, you know, made myself write down a lot of those experiences that I had had and um, just kind of fit them into the book wherever they seem to make sense. And when I started looking at it, I realized that, that you know, I'd had a number of experiences though. I had never really been haunted to the extent that I think, you know, some people have, have some pretty extreme things, you know, things tipping over blankets being tossed about. Hmm. Most of mine were sort of mild compared to that, but I had had a number of things Sort of, so when you compiled it all together, I realized that, you know, since I was a child, I'd, I'd had a lot of, um, encounters with the paranormal. And I think part of the reason that I gravitated toward those things, even as a young child, is that I had a mother that didn't, didn't make me feel afraid of those things. And I think that that's really key. Because if you see something come into your room, and you talk about it, and somebody makes you feel like you did something wrong by seeing that, you might continue to see that, but you're going to see it as like something more frightening, mm. or something more negative. And my mom was very kind of, you know, open, and whether she believed me or not about the things that I was seeing, she was very um just she was able to just say things to me to make me um, like kind of take control of the situation myself. So it wasn't like, Oh, well, the next time you see that call for me, or there's no such thing as monsters. It was like, okay, the next time that happens, I want you to, you know, squeeze this toy or, you know, tell me about it or talk to it or don't talk to it or, you know, things like that. And so I think I felt empowered. And then I wasn't as afraid. And, um, that kind of made me even more interested in it. And I was talking with my sister about, we used to do the Ouija board cause you know, we're like eighties kids and the Ouija board was everywhere <laughs> and it's back in stores by the way. I think we can thank like stranger things probably for that. I think, in fact, I think there was a stranger things Ouija board the last time I was in target, which I thought was hilarious. Um, and we were, <laughs> we were like doing the, and I was just talking with her the other day. And I said, were you afraid? Did you think it was me? And she said, actually, I, I." she almost didn't see, seemed like she still wanted to believe that it could have been me. And she said, she remembered getting really freaked out and not wanting to do it anymore. And I said, I don't, I don't remember that. I remember getting, I remember it moving. And I knew by the look on her face and how scared she was that she wasn't moving it. And I knew I wasn't moving it. And it actually made me want to ask more questions of like whatever little thing, conversation we were having, whoever we were having a conversation with. But I I do think people, so a lot of people say that you can make contact with something and it's not what it says it is. And I think that's where the kind of the devil comes into play there. Mm -hmm. And people oh, the Ouija board's evil. Because it, it is true that if you make contact with an entity and you're not, um, prepared for that and you're vulnerable, just like on the internet, someone's going to say, Oh yeah, I'm a 10 year old that, you know, also likes ice cream and ponies. So, so you, you, you can have something that can impersonate, um, something to give you like more conversation. And I think for me, I probably just wasn't ready to have any kind of like, you know, I mean, a young kid is generally not ready to have an ongoing conversation with an entity, you leave that to the grown up witches, you know, that's, Mm. that's you. um, So there's some, there's, there's a lot of um, experiences like that, I think, where something has come through too strongly. And certain people just have an energy with it that it's just like the, like you said, that the planchet can get hot, things can go really, really wrong really fast. And whether it's because the Ouija board is there or if that's just a conduit to something that was already there, we we won't really ever know that.
1: Right. Well, like I said with the the EVPs that it's today's Ouija board, I mean, same thing. Yeah, we're getting voices, but is it really a 10-year-old boy that's talking to us? And a lot of people believe that the children are actually a demonic entity over the adult voices that come across and they're like oh it's just an adult female or whatever well uh, if it's a demon or any uh jinn any any of these entities that are kind of known to be kind of trickster or or uh, malevolent if you will they can mimic a voice whether it's a 10 year old girl or a 50 year old man right, <laughs> so how, right, exactly. how are you how are you going to determine what's what even if it's ouija board or evp it, it it's something that is kind of interesting. Um,
2: it is. And the really like what the only thing you can do is go into it prepared, trust your gut. And by being prepared, I just mean, you know, being aware, being respectful, trust your gut when something feels creepy and, you know, probably bring along some salt or something <laughs> just to, just to kind of like, just in case cast yourself a little circle, but you do have to be responsible with it. But I think that's true of any you know, any kind of, um, anything that involves any kind of ritual and that can be going on a ghost investigation. I mean, that's a ritual in and of itself, Mm -hmm. just like doing a, you know, a ceremony for a, for a specific holiday or a spell or anything like that. Those things all require a certain amount of, um, forethought and concentration and consideration of all the things around you. And, I'm sure you've been in situations before when you might have somebody on an investigation with you that you really, really regret mm. that you brought that person. Mm-hmm. And um, especially if you kind of do, you know, like I've done a couple of the oh, everybody kind of joins together and um, you might not know everyone and sort of like a hosted event, like historical society hosted or mm-hmm. something like that. Yeah. And then you don't know who you're going to be with. And sometimes that you know, even the, even the person leading the investigation, you might not totally gel with. You might not like their approach. Um, so it can be, uh, it's just such a, it's such a personal experience, but yeah. definitely not, uh, definitely not something to be taken lightly. But at the same time, I don't think it should really. Uh, I, I think it gets a bad rap. I definitely think the Ouija board gets a, you know, reputation for being very <laughs> negative. And, uh, you know, it can be a lot of fun, I think. So <laughs>
1: So overall, for the stories that you had for the book, were were they kind of a mix or more positive than negative? or?
2: Well, I would say that in terms of the stories that people contributed to me, um, all of the encounters were pretty positive. There's one really scary one. It's the scariest story I've ever heard. And it was told to me a number of years ago by somebody. And when he started to tell me, he was almost hesitant. And, um, it, and part of the reason that, ma- part of the thing that makes it so scary is that It's somebody, it all has to do with, you know, who's telling you what their experience is because this is somebody that I've known all my life. This is somebody that would have his sword ready should the zombies attack. You know, this is not somebody who shirks away from strange noises in the woods. And he had this experience that um, took place on the property that he owns where he grew up. He grew up, you know, the next parcel over Still belongs to his family and where his grandparents live. And he um, heard this thing that sort of ha- made a sound that he could only describe as it was just this extremely low guttural sound, um, like something, not quite something, not that it was something was in pain or that it was, um, it wasn't high pitched. It was just this very, very low sound. And what happened is he heard it kind of coming up the valley toward him. This is a pretty rural property. And then he heard it stop. And when he kind of went to step outside, he was just like, what on earth could that be? Is that an animal? And, you know, again, somebody who's lived there their whole life, they know most of the sounds. They know that there are some uh, donkeys and things down in the valley. So is it an animal in heat or an animal, you know, dying or so? What's going on? And then the sound came closer And so it started up again and this time it was closer and it was causing things to rattle on the windowsills. And of course now, what time is it? It's almost dark. He's alone on the property. You know, there's all the entire setting is just like. And also, he told me this story when I was standing on the property and it was getting dark. So it was oh, like, oh sh- here. <laughs> and then it, he was staying in this little cabin because he was building a house. And so who's staying in the cabin that night? Me, because he's going to go <laughs> sleep in the big house, right? I'm like, really? You're going to tell me this? <laughs> but of course, I baked it out off of him. So um, it so then he um, I think he, I don't think he got up that second time. He just heard it and then it stopped. And that was the thing that really thought, he thought was really odd is that when an, if something's making a sound like an animal, it would echo throughout the valley. You would hear a reverberation and there was nothing. He said it was just like the sound just truncated. The third time it happened, it was, this is all just in a few seconds or a few minutes. Um, the third time it happened, it was so close that it actually shook the cabin. And he at that point decided, not to go out, <laughs> not to explore what it was. I mean, the first time he looked out, he didn't see anything and he went back in this and the sound started. So the third time, um, he just waited it out and he had never heard anything like that. It just shook him to his core. He, he eventually, when it seemed like it had passed, he did open the door and he looked around the property. He didn't feel particularly frightened at that point. Um, you know, he sh- shone his, his light around and then, cause there wasn't electricity on the property yet. Okay. And so then he, um, the next day he looked all around because he had been clearing brush and clearing a spot for his house. And so he looked all around and he couldn't um, he couldn't see anything amiss. Nothing had been smashed down as if something had crashed through the forest. Um, it was just it was just completely he just couldn't explain it. And he just it actually took him several days to even really tell his girlfriend at the time because he just didn't. Know quite what to say or how to describe it, but a couple days later he was working on the property and the neighbor down below. His son came up and they were kind of talking and he said, "You know, I had this like really. Did you guys hear something funny the other night?" And the neighbor kid said, "No, but my my dad said he heard something really weird last night." So he goes down to talk to the neighbor and the neighbor had heard a very similar sound, but it ended with a splash into his pond. But it was the next night. So we, to this day, we don't know what it was. It was something moaning in the woods. And, um, it's probably one of the, you know, sk- there's, there's a few more details to it. I put the whole story. Actually, he, he wrote the story. So it was sort of, he, I, I had him just write down what happened, his experience. And then we talked about it and we, you know, um, put it in the book more or less exactly as he had, uh, delivered it to me. And, um, it was, it was a total, total mystery, you know, is this some sort of, to me, I'm thinking banshees, what are we like, what could this be? And we didn't, um, specifically identify like a life event at that point that was negative, like a banshee did somebody pass away or did somebody fall ill shortly after that. But what we do know is that, you know, he's 40 uh, something years old, lived on this property in you know, the majority of his life. He's lived in this area, had lived on this property for a number of years, um, you know, prior to this happening and, um, has never heard anything like it since, thankfully. And even he, like, I have to draw that story out of him when, it, cause I like him to retell it to me occasionally because I want to make sure I'm remembering it right. Well, now it's, immortalized in the book. So I'll always remember it. But, um, I'll never forget the sort of pretense under which he told me as well, because, you know, when something like that happens to you, you're not going to just like tell all your friends because some people are not going to understand, right? Like you Mm -hmm. said, Hey, uh, well, have you ever seen a UFO? People ask that first. Uh, Have you ever had an encounter? Because they don't want to be the first ones to share, but he knows me and, you know, knowing the kind of person I am He actually sort of pulled me aside that night and he said, I had to tell you about this thing that happened. And it had been a couple of weeks since it had happened when he finally told me. So it took him that long just to call me up that night and say, you're not going to believe what I heard. He was still trying to process what it was like he thought did my, was a friend pranking me. That was his first thought as a friend pranking me and playing a synthesizer and playing, you know, this like discordant sound but then how are they traveling up so quickly up the kit? Ca- like how is this sound continuing and surrounding just exactly where he was? So there's, it was a very um, strange experience. And this person has also had a number of other um, shadow people appear throughout his life and things like that. So he's not a stranger to this kind of thing, um, but he is a scientist. So he has a, a mind that eliminates a lot of the, explanations so okay well oh. yeah but anyway that what to, just to answer your question there's there's the majority of the stories in here are stories of people's first it, it turns out there was a recurring theme where i asked when i asked someone to share a story they would say um i'm going to tell you about the first time that something really happened to me and this is kind of what set me on my path or my first paranormal my first paranormal encounter And so that's a recurring theme. And for most of those people, the might've been a little eerie, but for the most part, it was a positive experience. And this was the only one that was just sort of like, whoa, this is really, um, hard to explain. There's one from Ron Kolek that is a little bit creepier, but he's had a lot of, um, he's done a lot of investigations over the years and, um, it's actually kind of, it's, it's got a funny twist to it. So it's, but it's, it's not, not really, I wouldn't say it's, Really negative. Okay. I think by and large, a lot of the experiences are unexplainable for sure, eerie, definitely. Um, but you know, did anybody feel threatened? One one of the contributors had a, a a ghost that would appear. His wife was very ill. And they never talked about it, but he had this ghost that this boy, this ghost of this child, kept coming in his house, and he would see it. And he didn't say anything to his wife, because he didn't want to upset her because she was so ill. Well, she didn't want to say anything to him, and she kept seeing this boy come and sit in her room with her. And she didn't say anything to him because she didn't want him thinking that she was—I mean, she couldn't talk very well. She was very ill, and 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 she—I don't think she wanted him to worry that something was happening to her. And so. Um, eventually she got better and they had a conversation about it and it seemed that there were times when he would, she was like on life support and he would, the the little boy would come in and would just sit with her and kind of distract her. And it, it was just this, this little visitor that they had. And that was a really, really beautiful, beautiful story. Um, but then I also have a ton of stuff just like, you know, most haunted cemetery, um, uh haunted hospitals and hotels and you know things like that that we all like to just read little listicles of
1: now in in that particular chapter was there anything any any of the locations that kind of stuck out to you the stories of those locations or uh something that kind of was because i saw that you had the stanley hotel in there which is kind of a common one but uh was there was there any that was kind of out of out of the ordinary or anything
2: yeah, well, slightly lesser known is the the little hotel that's right next to the Stanley Hotel, also in Estes Park, and that's the um, the place that the the ghost is was supposedly a prohibitionist, and she um, is known to knock drinks off the table. That's kind of her claim to fame. I'm trying to remember the name of that place. Uh, it is called, I will tell you. It is called the Bald Plate Inn and it's sort of nearby. It's a hundred year old inn and it has its own resident ghost who was a a prohibitionist and she'll go and like knock your drink off the table. Um, but yeah, you know, there was actually a couple of stories that I discovered kind of more in that because I relocated to Minnesota a couple years ago. And so, of course, I lived in San Francisco for many, many years, and that's my, where I know all the ghost stories. I know all the haunts, so to speak. So I've been doing some exploring around here and finding out about things. But, um, one, one particular story that I feel that I don't even have the full story is the story about, um, it's in a little town called White Bear Lake, which is about 20 minutes north of St. Paul. And Um, there, this is more of a gruesome story than a um, terrifyingly creepy haunted house story. But the story is that there were these, um, the, the Dakota had burial mounds alongside the lake, a number of them. I think they counted 20 at one point. Okay, and as the Victorian settlers came along, and they were this, this. Particular area because it was north of the cities. It was kind of oh well, summer on the lake type place. So a lot of people were building little resort cottages, and the wealthier people from St. Paul and Minneapolis were also um, you know building larger homes and things like that. Well, the town had the foresight to sort of preserve a path along the lake so that people could stroll and you know I- experience the lake and have that that nice summary resort thing. I think they even had like a big, at one point, a big, um, sort of amusement park, you know, with water slides and all of that on one side of the lake. So there was a particular, um, mound that was kind of at the corner of, I want to say it was Lake and I have to remember the, the cross street, Lake and Clark, I think. And, uh, the, one of the people who lived in that area built a gazebo on top of the burial mound. This is just this cannot possibly go well, right like you know it's like the setting for a stephen King
1: right story. Yeah.
2: <laughs> so um what happens is there's a carriage full of people riding along and right at that right at that corner where the gazebo is. The And the gazebo was built not without some controversy. There were many people who thought it probably shouldn't be there and that it was a little bit of an eyesore and that what are you doing putting a gazebo on top? Because they did know that these were burial mounds at that point. They weren't ignorant to that. They had had, you know, archaeologists come up from St. Paul and had identified what they were. Plus, you know, Dakota people were saying, yeah, you know, these are our burial mounds all over the place that you people are just like digging up and building on top of. So um, they had already kind of ruled that they were going to move some of these mounds or demolish some of these mounds because it blocked the view of the lake. So anyway, they, there's, so there's already some town controversy happening, happening about these, and this is all like the late 1800s. So the carriage is coming up to this intersection where this gazebo is built on top of this burial mound, and the horse spooks. And the carriage, uh, topples over and several, several people are killed right at that intersection. So now it's declared that somehow, you know, that the, that, that gazebo and that mound, that the whole thing is just a bad, bad mojo and it all needs to be torn down. So they tear down the gazebo and then they tear down the burial mound and all the surrounding burial mounds and they take from the burial mounds all of the burial goods. And they remove, I believe it was 19 skeletons. Hmm. They then put the skeletons on the train along with all the artifacts. And they ship them down to the Science Museum in Minnesota, uh, in St. Paul. Science Museum of Minnesota in St. Paul. So they send that, they send that away. And uh, the Science Museum opens the train car, takes all the artifacts and says, well, we can't accept human remains. So they ship the remains back up. Now, back then, that was at least a good hour, I think, on the trains. So you got bones going down, bones coming back. The bones come back, and then the good people of the town decide to, re you know, they, they bury them in a, a kind of a bigger grave in the town cemetery that had been established, um, all but three. And the rumor is that they had left, you know, three behind or repatriated three back into the mounds, which had at that point been sort of squished down and then the little path had been made on top of it. And eventually there was a road put in and the paved path and everything. And you can see this spot. And the funniest thing about this is that I just happened to be visiting that little town and I was walking along the lake because there's this lovely path. And I saw this plaque and I thought, "Ooh, a plaque, you know, I'm a history nerd. All right. What's what? all oh, I'm the person that stops and reads the plaques. So I'm standing there and I'm reading this plaque and I'm just expecting it to say once upon a time in historic White Bear Lake and this entire story unfolds about shipping the bones and the whole kind of gruesome deal. And so then I, you know, had to make it a mission to try and find that grave that they were talking about where they had repatriated them. And so the other part to that story is that at some point I would like to, you know, just sort of walk up to the, the, neighbors around there and to knock on their door and ask them if they've ever you know have they ever had any experiences in particular at that intersection because of the history of it do they know about the history especially some of those older homes um so that was just kind of like a fun fun is maybe not the right word but it, you know it's <laughs> <an> interesting <laughs> it was a fun discovery um it was interesting and just kind of a little little bit of uh haunted past that, you know, I would have just kind of walked right by had I not just seen this kind of old school plaque that was up. So I found a number of things around um, around um here like that, that also led me to other things like looking up some of the haunted sanitariums that were in the area or supposedly haunted. And then that just sort of led me through the you know, many different places that are, there's something particularly creepy about an abandoned hospital, right? So anytime you have that, you tend to have um, higher rates of hauntings or, you know, if something was once an asylum, then you got to, you know, that adds a creepy factor to it. So it was just a lot of fun kind of finding things that I had known about, like the Stanley Hotel, and then just sort of following those, um, following those little like Easter eggs as I discovered things that were related or, or nearby to it.
1: well oh, it's that, funny that, uh, you'd come across that plaque because I live in North Dakota, actually just to hop, skip and jump away from you. And I live in Bismarck, which is the capital. and the governor, the old governor's mansion here is supposedly haunted. And, Um, the one time that I got to investigate there, I had this feeling like there was this, this huge party going around, Mm. around, around me. I mean, obviously there wasn't, we were doing an investigation and, uh, the guy came out and said, yeah, this is where they, this is the room that they would use to entertain and they would throw parties here. Um, so it was interesting to see that correlation.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Well, if you ever do, if you, if you ever get privileged to go in there again, let me know. I'll crash your party. Sure. Absolutely. (laughs) I think I could be over there in six hours or something like that. (laughs) I'm on my way. Don't wait up.
1: (laughs) Now, the one chapter that you have in here is supernatural superheroes. What is, what is that chapter all about?
2: So that chapter is kind of about the secret lives of otherwise upstanding citizens. And, um, so init- so this book kind of came about from a project that, a couple projects that my publisher had asked me to do a number of years ago. And it was a series of ebooks. And, um, I was sort of set to task to find um, everything from like strange creatures and old folk tales to um, ghost stories to um, experiments and telepathy and all those kinds of things. And the idea was to just put out all these short little ebooks and pretty quickly we realized that these would make beautiful collections and so we started I started putting them together in what I thought would become collections. but the the paranormal parlor stuff was what I really like that was my kind of ultimate goal. Because it was the stuff I love the most. But it also was so ongoing. It was just constant, constantly researching. Um, but during that process, I learned about so many people who had um, these sort of secret lives. For example, the man who was this um, staunch reverend who also wrote the greatest volume of uh, folklore and um, sort of a, I guess it's a probably the closest thing you'd have to an anthropological view of the existence of werewolves. He traveled all around the countries, um, uh, the Scandinavian countries, especially in parts of Europe. He was an English reverend, and he gathered. Um, so he wrote these kind of big hymnals and um, philosophical religious tomes, but he also wrote this huge volume about werewolves, and his name was Sabine Baring gould And then there was, you know, the, um, the guy who, who was a very, very famous architect and designed kind of part partially responsible for the Gothic revival movement and did all of these, uh, um, really famous buildings around, especially around new England. And he was a horror writer on the side Hmm. and actually received a number of accolades, including a compliment from H P Lovecraft. So, and that guy was named Ralph Adams cram. So there was a, so that, that chapter is kind of all about that. It's about all of the, so rather than, I couldn't include all of their stories, but I included who I discovered and, uh, which allows the reader to then look them up and, you know, read more about them or find some of their works. And a lot of them have works in the public domain. Um, this fantastic thing that Charles Dickens did where he, and this is, this is one of my favorite, the, the story itself and the way it reads actually reads really well, but the premise behind it is what makes it so exciting. Basically, Charles Dickens, you know, of course, he was a famous writer, but he was also an editor. And so he solicited um, this project, which was called The Haunted House or The Haunted House of 1859. Then he had a few different, it was published under a few different titles, but I always just called it Charles Dickens Haunted House. And what he did is he, said, okay, um, what I'm going to do is here's a, uh, here's the setting. It's a haunted house and each and a, a gathering of friends are going to come together during the 12th night of Christmas, which is supposed to be the, when, um, you know, the wells run with blood instead of water and animals talk and all kinds of magical things happen during those 12 nights of Christmas and the, the, the peak night. Um, we're all going to gather, we're going to stay in this house and we're all going to go back to our respective rooms. None of us, unless there's a problem like a grave illness or something, none of us will communicate until tomorrow. And then we'll all exchange our stories. This is his premise of this, this story that he wants to write. Mm -hmm. And then he writes the introduction and then he assigns out all of his favorite writers of the time, a room and a character well, one of them is this woman who was, um, the Queen of England's favorite poet. And so her entire room, uh, I forget she's the clock room or something like that, is all told in this long poem. Um, he's got another friend who was really known for his seafaring adventures. Well, his character is the ghost in the, um, I, I can't remember all the different who was assigned what room, but it's things like the ghost in the clock room, the ghost in the parlor, the ghost in the um in the kitchen, um, the the one in the attic. And so everybody was assigned it was like this kind of really complex editorial project that he did, but he sort of cast these characters. So it has this like clue like Kind of thing is like, okay, you're going to stay in this room and you're going to stay in this room. And it's just this really great kind of creative endeavor with all of these pretty well known writers at the time. And then they all kind of put it together into this story that was published in, um, in his publication called All Year Round. And he put it out right before Christmas of, of, I think it was 1889. And I just love the, you know, the backstory to that story and then the way they, I mean, how fun would that be? What a fun project that would be to right. set, setting. And then very simple, like your, your assignment is fairly simple as a writer. You simply have to say who you are. Now, some of them talked about an actual ghost. Some of them just told the story of who this person was. And, um, it's just kind of all open to interpretation, but it was this fantastic, um, just this fantastic project. And that was something that I had worked on a bit when I was doing the ebook series, and that I wanted to include at least the story behind it in this book, because it's just so significant, Um, just kind of a cool project. And again, we know that Charles Dickens had kind of a thing for ghosts. But this was a thing for ghosts that I didn't know about. So it was kind of another level for me.
1: <laughs> well, the, the one thing that I was looking at is the, the introduction. And this is, I don't think more truer words have ever been spoken. It's called What Fools We Mortals Be. And I, I mean, to think about that phrase and think about all the craziness that are, that's going on in the world today, other than just the paranormal stuff us mortals really are fools.
2: (laughs) So true. And the thing is, is that, you know, I am rarely frightened by uh, something that is dead or the spirit of something that is dead. I'm far more frightened by the living. And that is, and people used to ask me, why are you spending time in a cemetery? Don't you find that spooky? Actually, it's better than a public park you're less harassed if you're you know crying or emotional no one's going to think twice mm-hmm. and for the most part you're you're significantly safer um, because you're kind of out tucked out of the way and no one thinks to look for you <laughs> there so right. you can sit and write in your journal in 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 private in peace um but absolutely and i think you know we have to have we have to be seeking something because we can't whether it's the paranormal or for other people, it might be some other kind of religious quest, but you got to have something that you're, that gives you a glimmer of hope. And when you see kind of, you know, crazy things happening and you're, you're okay, what's the lesson here? What's the lesson here? But it's nice to be able to have something at least to um, hold on to or to entertain you or to take you away from that. And I think that's the ghost story itself does that. And it's at its best, it will suspend all your worries and all your cares, except for the your heart rate and what you're reading or what story is being told to you. You're engrossed in it. And that is um, that's a, a, a pleasure and also a fantastic way to just kind of to cope, I think. I mean, I certainly use it as a coping mechanism.
1: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Well, and it's it's funny you brought up uh, being in a cemetery because one of my things that I like to do is go to a cemetery and look at all the old gravestones because I, I look at them and I see the ones that only lived for a day and, you know, it kind of makes you wonder what would have happened if that child had not died at childbirth or just shortly after or... Uh, the different people that went to war and died overseas and they're buried or maybe not even buried. It's just the marker there. Um, And it's a lot of people w- would hear that and think, well, God, you're weird. Um, And <laughs> the funny thing is, I don't well,
2: think that. <laughs> well,
1: <laughs> I told my wife that uh, when we first started dating and she didn't think that either. And it's like, well, good. I've found somebody who's my kind of weird. and <laughs> we
2: <were>. <laughs> <laughs> Well, absolutely. And there's something just so peaceful and um, about looking, like there is something about reading those names and thinking about the lives that they may have lived, who they were, seeing the connection. Oh, look, this person has the same last name. Oh, and the same middle name. That must be the married daughter of It's Sort of starting to see that puzzle and, I mean that's why those stones are there right to to remind us of who these people were when they were living mm-hmm. and there's certainly nothing wrong in fact they probably you know does them a great service to walk and see the names just like we do with a war memorial to see the names of people who once lived and and died and you know to just to acknowledge that there's a certain acknowledgement that is, and plus they're beautiful places. They're meant to be beautiful places. They're meant to be beautiful memorials and they're meant for people to walk and sit on the bench and observe and read these fantastic old names and, um, kind of imagine the lives that they did live. It's fascinating, I think.
1: I'm, I'm a writer at heart. So, T- to see to those get
2: character things names when you're walking yeah. around right? <laughs> totally.
1: well and even just to come up instance. with a story too just from the different like i said Absolutely. seeing the dates and everything
2: yeah and then also like i think if you're in a city or you've been to like a little and i love like small town america like the cemeteries in small town america you just if you do, if you stop at one place and then you'll find like, hey, this person's last name is McHenry. And that's McHenry Street is the main street in town. Mm-hmm. And, I wonder that's a, and so you can just kind of start to see these like little connections. And it helps you remember a place and identify with the history and the value of a place. And if you can do that, then, you know, you've had a, a better experience. You can connect more with the locals and um, learn more about the, the place. So... It's often my first stop. And, you know, you learn this, right? If you're a cemetery hunter, you learn, like, okay, where's the cemetery? Look for Park Avenue. Sometimes it's really obvious it's Cemetery Lane, right? Right. But, you, you know, you kind of start learning, like, what what are the roads on the maps that will lead you to those places?
1: Well, you would just love it here because the surrounding cities outside of Bismarck is nothing but small town USA. So. <laughs>
2: yeah, right? I know. I know. So many so I've been kind of working on a podcast myself, and it's it's come to a hiatus um, only because I just needed to get a wrangle on it. Technically, I was doing it with a partner who is unfortunately unable to continue. And so um, the technical end has kind of been left on my plate, and I'm not a technical person. So there's a big learning curve. And then I got totally sidetracked trying to finish up the this book and promote it and stuff. But hmm. The idea of it, it's called, um, it, the podcast is called Varla Ventura's Tales of the Strange, but the first season is Strange America. And the idea is that each state, I'm going to each state and I'm interviewing. Now, I may not actually be able to travel to each state at this point, but I'm finding people in in each state that can tell me something sort of unusual um, it might be a paranormal investigator. It might be somebody who's well-versed in cemeteries. Um, I interviewed a man who was the curator of a pharmacology museum at the university of Arizona. So there's a lot of different like ways you can go with that, but I love finding, you know, there's, there's always kind of the, the, a few States where you've got like, maybe like a bigger name or something, but if you don't mind, I'll put you on my list for North Dakota or are you in South Dakota?
1: North Dakota, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, you're in Dakota.
2: <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, I'll put you on my on my list, but I'm I've I've probably shot myself in the foot by making myself go alphabetical. <laughs> so, <laughs> I may break that mold and interview you sooner. So. <laughs> <All
1: right. laughs> Sounds good to me. Absolutely. Um, all right. Well, we are getting close to the end of the show. So I wanted to give you a chance to tell everybody where they can find you, find the book, any other information. It's all yours.
2: Thank you. So you can just visit my website. It's varlaventura.net. That's V-A-R-L-A-V-E-N-T-U-R-A dot net. Um, I've got all my links and information there. You can find me on Facebook. I have some of the other things, the social things, but to be honest, somebody just made that all automatic for me. So I don't um, communicate via like Twitter or anything like that. I'm too, I'm too, too verbose for Twitter.
1: <laughs> well, um, <laughs> I myself, as a podcaster and author, I've asked several people, like, what's the best way to do it? Do you post every day? Do you post a little bit? Because. Personally, I'm not about the social media. So for me to try and post about shows and stuff, I barely post about my own personal life. Yeah, so so it, it's hard. Um, <laughs>
2: I'm to get they, the advice directly from you. <laughs> n-
1: nobody ever really has the uh, good equation, if you will, because some people say, well, you got to post at least once a day. Some people say multiple times a day. Some people say, well, I don't post at all, just every so often. So and it these people in, are in varying degrees of um, popularity for shows and selling their books and that sort of a thing. So I don't think there really is a magical equation. Yes, you should have a presence on social media because today is or you know this day and age that that's what it is. It's social media and technology it's sort of, required run, of you. Right? Yeah.
2: What is nice about something like um, like Facebook, for example, it's a way that I people can reach out to me. I prefer to correspond via email because I keep track and I have a calendar in there. But uh, time and time again, people reach out to me via Facebook. They might tell me a story. They might book an interview. And it just becomes a really easy, easy way to do it. And so I I like that aspect of it. Um, But, you know, there's just there's there's so many different things you can do. And I, I just I find that I have to streamline it. I definitely notice people are more interested if I post more, but that kind of makes sense, right? Because they feel like they're having some kind of correspondence right, with you. Right. Uh, but I've gone, I mean, one time I went two years without posting anything. <laughs> I would not recommend that. That was like, <laughs> I'm crawling under a rock and I'm writing like three books and I'll see it. See you right. guys on the, on the flip <laughs> side, right? So I wouldn't recommend that. That's not great for your career. You <laughs> might come to the standstill.
1: <laughs> and they can but, find yeah, the books just, pretty much everywhere too, anywhere,
2: right? Yeah, they're, um, this book, um, Barla Ventura's Paranormal Parlor, out June 1st. So it's widely available now. It's available on um, Amazon, IndieBound, Barnes & Noble, um, all the main bookstores. And if your local bookstore doesn't have it, it's, it's available. So they should be able to order it for you. And um, I have to give a shout out to the publisher because they just did – the book itself is very – beautiful it's got little flaps and it's got a beautiful cover and there's artwork throughout so it's not a straight reading book so much as it is kind of there there's just it's it's enhanced like all of the books they've done for me and um i'm just really grateful because um you know as an author you don't always get to say what you want it to look like and i've just gotten lucky each time that what they've done has just been gorgeous so um they look nice on a they look nice together on a shelf
1: well, and One it does. Page. Yeah, they did a really good job. I, I think that pretty much all the books that I've seen by you, they're they're very well done for the the uh, the cover page as well as the the content itself. Because being with the publisher, sometimes you don't even know what's going to actually end up in the book, or they're going to say, okay, you got to get rid of this, or you got to get rid of this. So it's awesome that you have a good standing relationship with your publisher.
2: Oh, yeah. They're awesome. They even let me um, they even let me look through the pages and say, can you please like there were a couple of like really cheesy images in the book. And I, can't, I don't want to be super picky, but this like joke ghost guy, I just can't. And, and they did. They got they got they, they replaced it. It was really, you know, I try not to do too many because I think, you know, the designer did a nice job and it's annoying to hear that. Yeah. At every page, but it's nice to be able to have. I mean, I don't have a final say, you know, I'm, I'm, but I but I have a good, heavy influence and it's it's um, it's a good relationship.
1: So lucky mm. in that regard. Well, thank you so much for coming on Beyond Reason. And I hope you have a good night.
2: Yes. Thank you so much for having me. And um, I'll look forward to interviewing you one day.
1: <laughs> that sounds good. All right. Have a good night.
2: All right. Thank you. Bye bye.
1: All right, folks, that was Varla Ventura, author of Varla Ventura's Paranormal Parlor, Ghost Seances, and Tales of True Hauntings. I want you guys to go check out Varla's website. It'll be in the show notes below. And uh, make sure that you're checking out all of her books. They're all great books. Um, Varla is an amazing guest. So check that all out. Uh, Make sure you're liking, sharing, subscribing to Beyond Reason anywhere that you listen, as well as give me a, a any rating. I don't care if it's five star or one star. If you don't like it, let me know. And uh, check out beyondreason.net. That's where I'm always posting all of my content, as well as anywhere else that you can find wonderful podcasts. So until next week, folks, keep those minds open. This is Justin Cancellari signing off.